Space 1999 was a Jerry and Sylvia Anderson production, made in England, but created for ITC worldwide distribution. Space 1999's genesis is a curious one, originally designed to be the second season of Anderson's previous series, UFO. This was retooled into a completely different series when ratings for UFO in the key demographics, Los Angeles and New York, dropped towards the end of the run. Anderson, annoyed at the sudden U-turn and cancellation, went to Lord Lou Grade, the head of ITC, and stated that a lot of time and money had been put into UFO Season 2. So instead of wasting all that time and pre-production, why not just turn this into a new show and sell that? Grade agreed, and Space 1999 was born. Now I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Why was a lot of time put into the development of a series that had already started, you're thinking? Well, it had been reported to Anderson that the better rated episodes of UFO were the ones set on the moon base. And the idea was that for the second season, the characters would move to the moon base, seen in season one, full time. This meant a retooling of the series from what it was. Personally, I'm glad UFO died after 26 episodes. I'm not one of the people who felt the Moonbase setting was the best. I preferred the Earth versus the Aliens setup and liked the interpersonal dynamics between the characters, be they the Moonbase personnel, Central HQ personnel, or the crew of the submarine that patrolled the oceans. I liked that UFO took place all over the globe, and for me, the best episodes were the ones set on Earth. I suspect I would have greeted this soft reboot of the show with the same disdain I reserved for the second seasons of War of the Worlds, Book Rogers, and indeed, Space 1999. However, the death of UFO meant that Space 1999 was a go. Further to reports that the moon base was the audience's preferred setting, the head of ITC in New York, Abe Mandel, didn't even want the characters to go to Earth at all. Jerry devised a premise where the Earth was destroyed, which would certainly eliminate that problem. ITC felt this was a tad extreme, and heads were put together. Jerry didn't want the cast to be on a spaceship, as that would be too reminiscent of Star Trek, so he came up with the idea of nuclear waste, which mankind had been dumping on the moon, exploding, sending the moon careening out of Earth's orbit and hurtling through space. This appealed to Jerry, specifically as it meant that the crew had no control over where they went or who they encountered. Unlike Star Trek, the crew of Moonbase Alpha weren't boldly going, they were out of control. Design and preliminary special effect work began under the auspices of SFX wizard Brian Johnson, whilst Jerry set about casting the show. As they wanted to sell it around America, a big-name star was mooted for the lead role, Commander John Koenig. Jerry recruited Martin Landau, but Landau came as a package deal with his wife, Barbara Bain. She was cast as the series' doctor, Helena Russell. Sylvia Anderson wasn't really a fan of this casting decision, preferring that the lead went to actor Robert Culp. Now, I liked Landau as Commander Koenig, but I can't help but wonder what Culp would have done with it. The third lead, Professor Victor Bergman, was played by Barry Morse. And the rest of the series, like Star Trek, was populated with secondary characters that came and went as the story demanded. Prentice Hancock was second in command Paul Morrow. 
Nick Tate was pilot Alan Carter, Xenia Merton was data analyst Sandra Bange, and various others popped up throughout the series. The pilot episode Breakaway established the premise of the show. On September 13th, 1999, the Moon and the personnel of Moonbase Alpha are blasted out of orbit when the controversial dumping of nuclear waste backfires. This ecological catastrophe means vast changes for Earth and for the crew of Moonbase Alpha, an eternity trapped wandering the vastness of space. With cost overruns and reshoots, Breakaway was a troubled production, but stands up today as one of the finest pilots for a TV show ever made, and was far above the standards of the times, where the competition was sanitised TV versions of far more ambitious and adult movies like Planet of the Apes or Logan's Run. Nevertheless, Space 1999 proceeded to series, and one of the earliest episodes best sums up the approach to that series, and the one that made it unique. Black Sun, written by David Weir with input from story editor Chris Penfold, and directed by Lee H. Katzin, had one of the strengths of early Space 1999. Many people actually pointed towards this as a central weakness whilst the series was still in production, and that was how unlike Star Trek it was. I recall Starlog magazine regularly complaining that the series had potential, if only it were more like Star Trek. This was seen in all the other science fiction series of the era, such as Battlestar Galactica, Blake 7 and Book Rogers, and even shows that had no right trying to be Star Trek, such as the aforementioned Logan's Run and Planet of the Apes, which melded the tried-and-true man-on-the-run theme with Trek's approach to character. What were Logan, Rem and Jessica, if not a reworking of Kirk, Spock and McCoy? Space 1999 doesn't do this. Koenig is not a man of decisive action like Kirk. He's more thoughtful and considerate. He's a precursor to Picard and even Captain Pike, showing that Star Trek eventually looked to Space 1999, as many other shows have done. The crew of Moonbase Alpha aren't the best of the best. They were simply a bunch of office workers who had the misfortune to be on duty the day the moon blew up. This is clearly in evidence as Black Sun opens. The crew are just lolling about in main mission. It's another boring day out of countless boring days. They're having coffee, chilling out. An asteroid then hoves into view. Computer expert and resident technological advocate David Carno, played by Clifton Jones, maintains the asteroid is no threat. It can't change course. It will sail harmlessly by Alpha with barely a ripple. First officer, Paul Morrow, continues his request to run a scan, just in case. So imagine everyone's surprise when the asteroid changes course and aims directly at Alpha. Stick that up your computer, eh, Carno? With no way of moving or even launching the eagles in time, Alpha looks doomed. Until the asteroid swerves at the last moment. Who is controlling it? And why? Q. Barry Gray's awesome opening credit theme.
Credits to Space 1999 have been said to promise a show that it never really delivered on. Beginning with some fast-cut scenes from the show, the theme mixes science fiction futurism with 70s guitar to great effect. No other show of the era, with the exception of Buck Rogers, best embraces futuristic disco as Space 1999. The rebooted Battlestar Galactica would reuse the technique of showing quick cuts of the forthcoming episode, which in these spoiler-phobic times people whined about. This seems silly to me. The clips are so quick as to barely register as more than blipverts. And anyway, we often saw moments and angles in these clips that didn't appear in the show. Koenig launches an eagle piloted by Manfred Mann lead singer-turned-actor Paul Jones, who, for some reason, is adopting a quite unconvincing American accent. It's implied Sandra and Jones are an item, probably to give some emotion to his death when he approaches a black hole which is sucking Alpha towards it. This sequence is actually quite disturbing, as the forces of the black hole, here named a black sun for some reason, literally stretch and pull the eagle apart. Unable to pull away, Alpha will be destroyed by the same forces within three days. Leave it to Professor Bergman to come up with a plan of escape. A few minutes ago, Paul asked, can we avoid the gravitational force of a black sun? Well, the answer is no. However, we may be able to use it to our advantage. Victor? Hmm. Now, as you know, these eight anti-gravity towers stabilize our gravity here inside Alpha. And we're going to use them to create an entirely new force field effect by linking and cross-linking the anti-gravity screens in each of the towers. The force field will look something like this. I've stripped all of our generators out of our eagles. We'll use them to support the main units. But computer will have to be deactivated for the force field. Yes, well, um, it can do with the rest. We're going to reprogram our main unit generators so that instead of trying to negate the pressure from the black sun, it will simply reverse it. The closer we're drawn to it, the stronger the force field will become. So that, theoretically, the pressure of the force field will eventually compel the pressure of the black sun to protect us against itself. It's a long shot, but there's nothing else we can do. It's ingenious. It's insane. Professor Bergman was one of the more fascinating characters on the show. Bergman was Koenig's conscience and advisor. He was very much a man of science and logic. But not like Spock. Bergman cared about the people of Alpha and everyone on board. He seemed to not be too bothered by the situation they found themselves in, seeing every moment as an opportunity for discovery and exploration. As you just heard in that clip, though, Koenig and Bergman are lying. The force field won't work, and they both know it. Its creation is all for morale. This idea would be explored further in the rebooted Battlestar Galactica, where Commander Dharma will pull a similar trick when he tells the fleet of the search for Earth 
something he doesn't believe is real or even exists. But he does believe it's better to give people a small glimmer of hope than not at all. It's a good character beat, and there are lots of good character moments in this episode. Surprising for a show that was constantly criticised for its wooden acting and cardboard characterization. Carno's disappointment that computer will not be used in the computations as Bergman thinks this needs a human touch. Koenig's pondering of if Bergman really believes they can survive or if he's just giving the commander hope like the commander is doing with the crew. Bergman's life being saved because he had an artificial heart, a trait he shares with Captain Picard. The attention to detail that the crew get colder as they approach the black hole and the crew's stoicism in the face of hopelessness. The only misstep is a scene where Alan Carter practically begs Koenig to fly the survival eagle, which Alpha elects to launch in an effort to save at least some of the Alphans' personnel. This comes across as a bit whiny, which Carter never was. He was the closest the show actually had to a squirrel action hero. He makes excellent points that he's the best pilot they have, and the few personnel elected to leave, he would certainly be the one best suited to keeping them alive. He's right. And when the computer picks the few to leave, he's on the list. So ultimately the scene comes across as unnecessary, and Carter putting himself before everyone else, which is uncharacteristic. And I can't believe that was the intention of the scene. That said, the moment when Koenig picks the crew to leave, there's a great moment when the other Alphans actually give the potential survivors dirty looks and the cold shoulder. This struck me as a very true, realistic human moment. It's not personal, just a case of why have you got chosen to survive and not me. It's not really survival, though. As the show points out, the occupants of the Eagle only have enough food and supplies for five weeks. If they don't find a planet that they can inhabit by then, they too will die in the cold vastness of space. And their deaths will not be as quick or as easy as the Alphans. The episode asks the question, who really drew the short straw? It's worth noting again that these moments feel true because this crew isn't the noble crew of a Starfleet vessel. These are all just calling from accounts. They got unlucky. They're probably all quite pissed off at the situation in which they find themselves. This also created a minor plot hole. If Koenig and Bergman know the force field is a sham, why does Koenig not send all the eagles out with a full crew complement so as to increase the number of survivors? Well, the force field does provide a measure of protection, so maybe this assumes some protection was better than none. Black Sun is certainly far from your average episode of genre TV in the early 70s. There's no action sequences to speak of, none of the explosions that Jerry and his team are rightly famous for, and no fireworks of the likes of eagles crashing into the moon's surface. It's all very cerebral and actually quite challenging. Black Sun asks some pretty big questions of its characters and its audience, pondering the nature of faith, God and the infinite. Watching the Alphans prepare to meet death in the most mundane ways possible is strangely affecting. They play chess or break out the guitar. Lonely people come together for what may be the last time. Koenig and Bergman share a brandy and ponder exactly what awaits them beyond the black hole. 
the exploration of faith, science and spirituality are keenly met. I found myself strongly invested in this episode, agreeing with Bain, Landau and Morse that this was probably one of the better episodes of the show, and had the series explored more of these challenging avenues, it would perhaps be more fondly remembered, or better received at the time anyway. As a kid though, I probably hated this one, wondering where the whiz-bang was. As an adult, I see that it is in danger of disappearing its own arse, sure, but I also see the influences of Space 1999 on the rebooted Battlestar Galactica and, more recently, thoughtful genre offerings such as Foundation and Silo. The ending could be seen as being a tad disappointing, given that some flashing lights speak to Koenig and Berkman, but that this disembodied voice could be God, and that God identifies as a female, an intriguing idea back in 1974, gives this episode bigger balls than Star Trek V had, which chickened out of a similar scenario at the last moment. Here, though, we have one of the issues many had with Space 1999, what has come to be known in fandom as the mysterious unknown force. A number of Space 1999 episodes, such as Collision Course, or even War Games, where Koenig expresses a belief that a god op, certainly something like it, is protecting them, were quite common. It's quite a cop-out to be able to hand-wave away dangerous predestination, although the show never really went that far. Not again, anyway. Here, though, clearly something helped the Alphans, and even in the final scene, Something returned Carter and his crew of survivors to Moonbase Alpha. What it was is never explained, leaving it to the audience and the characters to ponder. This being the third episode of the show, it also emphasises how Alpha is now their home. They can't go back. Space 1999 was ahead of its time in many ways. Its more cerebral storytelling style prefigured a lot of the science fiction we're seeing today, such as the aforementioned TV shows Foundation and Silo, and movies like Interstellar and The Martian. And whilst being influenced itself by 2001, Space 1999 in turn influenced Star Trek and Star Wars. George Lucas looked at Space 1999 for what the effects were doing and how they did it. And if you go and watch Star Trek The Motion Picture, Tell me with a straight face that the uniforms and tech aren't reminiscent of Space 1999. Likewise, the technological influences are just as wide as Star Trek. We all carry with us nowadays portable video screens in our pockets, similar to the Comlock, and all of us now wear monitors on our wrists to tell us our heartbeat, calorie intake and life signs. This episode also answers another major criticism of the day that it would take the Alphans years to even leave their own solar system. But at the end of this episode, the Alphans are thrown through the black hole and on the far side of the galaxy, well into uncharted space. This proves that the critics either weren't paying attention or didn't watch the show. Despite being written off at the time as a failed attempt to do Star Trek, the years have been kind to Space 1999 now recognised for what it is, a thoughtful, creatively designed and lavishly mounted production, as opposed to what it isn't, a Star Trek clone, Space 1999 has a better reputation nowadays than when it erred. The special effects all still hold up magnificently, 
I, for one, would rather watch an actual model eagle crash into an actual model moon than weightless, badly animated CG creations beating each other over the head any day of the week. The stories likewise have come under critical reappraisal, with many people now recognising how good episodes like Breakaway, Dragon's Domain, Earthbound and Collision Course are. Space 1999 was upgraded and cleaned up for a glorious Blu-ray set from Network Entertainment. Network recently went into administration after the death of their owner, so it's unsure who has the rights to the show now. So, were you interested, I would advise picking up these sets before they become too pricey. In the UK it streams on ITVX, and these appear to be the same HD upgrades, however, unless you want to pay an extra subscription fee, these have adverts. Where it streams worldwide, I have no idea, but BritBox may be a good place to start. If you dismissed the show, maybe give it another try. It's much better than series like the fun but, let's be brutally honest, juvenile Book Rogers, and far superior to tripe like The Tomorrow People and Land of the Lost, both of which I regularly see on underrated TV sci-fi shows lists. Space 1999 is aged like a fine whisky. And like whisky, it's not to everyone's tastes. But if you have acquired a taste for it, it will reward you. Ultimately, I suppose we all believe what we want to believe. That's just what reality is. One thing, though, the line between science and mysticism just a line. <laughs> Sometimes it makes me feel quite old. To everything that might have been. To everything that was. Okay, shall we have a look in the email sack? for this episode. The email today is from Robert McCarthy. Hey, Andy. Hey, Rob. Number one, when you said there'd be no huge shakeups, is true. Peter doesn't go blind or turn into a rabbit. There's just slowly building who is the hobgoblin plot. Uh, yeah, if this is reference to the Roger Stern and, and all of that, which it is, looking at the subject heading. Uh, yeah, and the hobgoblin plot doesn't even really kick off until midway through his amazing Spider-Man run. Roger Stern is just telling good, solid stories. But that's modern plotting versus old plotting. With Spider-Man, now, Stern then runs into a problem specific to Spidey. We thought it was fun to see Spider-Man fight other heroes, villains. New readers will just be asking, where's Doc Ock? And I think that's one of the fun parts of the Stern run, isn't it? That he brings in the Cobra and Mr. Hyde, and he brings in the Juggernaut, and he brings in, you know, like you say, other people's villains that's what makes it an eminently readable text i'll be covering more roger stern next time i'm currently halfway through writing that episode so look forward to that very soon other things to look forward to hey kids comics returns very very soon this time monthly 
from wherever you get your podcasts. Hopefully, including Spotify, if I can get all my ducks in a row. A special Zero episode will launch on the 18th of August, followed by a special encore presentation of Superman Doomsday, or the death of Superman, on the 25th of August. That is a heavily edited representation of our original Doomsday Christmas special from a few years ago. The original is still there if you want to go and listen to it. This version has a good 20-25 minutes cut out to make it purely about the Doomsday story. And then we will leap into the relaunch with an all-new episode on the 1st of September about the funeral for a friend. That will be followed up the following month with my son Michael and I looking at the reign of the Superman. Both episodes have been recorded as I record this and you're in for a treat. If you've ever listened to the show and thought, oh, that's pretty good, I'd love to buy those two guys a pint, you can do, and it would be very much appreciated. Kofi.com, K-O-F-I.com, slash A-Leyland, A-L-E-Y-L-A-N-D, will allow you to buy us a beer. And what I'm going to do with anyone who donates is save that money up, and at Christmas, I'm going to give Michael, my co-host, a nice little Christmas bonus. Obviously, you don't have to. I'm not going to start a Patreon thing because I know that times are tough at the minute and, and people have all manner of things to deal with. Okay, I'll be back next time looking at the second part of my look at Roger Stern's run on Spider-Man with some more issues from his spectacular Spider-Man run. I hope you'll be here with me to enjoy that and I hope that you all remember it's all going to be okay. You can email me at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com for both this show and hey kids comics and i'll see you all again real soon